Hello, everybody. Uh, Dr. Rick Wallace here dropping in on you, uh, following through uh, with the Black Wealth series. Uh, we're going to get into things uh, momentarily. Uh, if you follow me, you know I'm not one of those that does the prolonged uh, intro where you're waiting to get started. Normally, I have something to say, and I'm right into it. Uh, and then people simply join in as they get in and they may have to watch, uh, uh, you know, rewatch to get it. Uh, I don't wait for it to build up and all of that. Uh, so um, for those of you who are unfamiliar with what this series is about, the Black Wealth series is directly correlated with my 25th book project, which is associated with the entire wealth dynamic of the black community. Uh, we're going to dive into in this book, everything from 1865 to current and how it has played a role in our current state of economic affairs in the black community. Uh, why we have not been able to successfully uh, build generational wealth on a collective level and what we need to do and what we need to change in order to do that. Uh, this is a little bit more than simply visiting black group economics. Well, it's a lot more than visiting black group economics. It's a lot more than simply talking about money building and wealth building mechanisms like investing and holding assets and understanding the difference in between the different types of assets and how to operate across diverse assets and all that stuff. We're going to talk about that, too. Uh, we're going to uh, take the time to make sure you are familiar with what's going on, the terms and all of that. I think it's important to have a certain level of financial literacy in order to be able to operate and maneuver in the financial world. But you also need to understand the psychology behind it. You also need to understand that you're not operating on the same platform or the same level with the same doors and the same uh, accesses as non-blacks. And so I spend a lot of time in the first part of the book talking about these accesses and what has to be done to create new access opportunities, new openings for ourselves, because they are definitely there. Yesterday, we talked about uh, the black codes, which was something that came in and had a massive impact on newly freed slaves uh, from 1865 for about 20 to 30 years as Jim Crow took a stronghold thereafter. And today we're going to talk about Jim Crow, uh, which is a, a pretty cool dynamic. Now, what I want to point out here uh, as we get ready to get started is that in this project uh, for book number 25, uh, I've done something different and I've been talking about it for a week and we're going to continue to talk about it throughout the project is that I've opened up to partner with my tribe, my community, the people who rock with me, the people who see what I do on a regular basis. I've opened up to part partner with you guys and the way that I'm doing it is through a sponsorship program to get this project off. The book is the beginning of the project. It's not the final uh, step in the process. It's the beginning. It's to create a conversation. It's to create an awareness that goes beyond the, the basic understanding of uh, financial science or economic science, which our uh, elders and our ancestors knew. That's why they were able to build up places like Rosewood and, and, and Tulsa and Slocum and Wilmington and 
uh, East St. Louis and a bunch of other places is because they understood that. They understood how to pool their resources. They understood how to bounce their dollar. Uh, but there were things they didn't understand that were working against them that ultimately led to their demise. We need to talk about that because we need to understand how we're moving. But anyway, we're going to do all that. But I've sponsored, I'm open up a sponsorship. And in this sponsorship, uh, I want to explain this as quickly as possible so we can move right into what we're going to talk about today. Uh, the sponsorship is a person can sponsor uh, this book project that leads into the rest of what's going to take place after the book is published. Uh, with whatever amount they want there is no minimum amount 50 cent five dollars fifty dollars thousand whatever you want to uh sponsor when you sponsor regardless of the size of your sponsorship your name will be published in the book along with a write-up that you choose to honor someone you want to honor whether it's memorializing your parents memorializing a coach memorializing a mentor someone who has passed on or simply acknowledging and showing love for someone who's there i've had a few people who have celebrated their spouses a few people who have celebrated uh their parents um and in 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 other things and so you get to write this up and no matter what size your donation you get to write it now people who sponsor 25 or more will also get a copy of the book which will have those sponsorships in it uh those who sponsor hundred dollars or more will get a dedicated page meaning that your name and your write-up uh memorialization or acknowledgement will be on a dedicated page you will be the only one on that page anyone who uh sponsors at least five hundred dollars will also have a dedicated page but will be able to uh in in addition to their name and their write-up uh be able to submit a picture of the person that they're memorializing and that's the way we're going to do it um it's a way of asking you to support what I'm doing, but also saying, hey, look, uh, this is a chance for you to show some love to someone else and whatever. Uh, and so I'm accepting the sponsorships. For those of you who want to learn more about it, the link is in the box. Just click the link and it'll take you to the page. You can read and watch the video on what's going on. Or if you already feel like, hey, man, this is something I want to sponsor. I've put the link in the chat. You just click the link, go directly, and you sponsor. And you will be contacted by yours truly um, and asked to submit what you want on, 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 on your particular submission, uh, which will be your name and whatever you put down. We're not trying to shame anybody, so we're not putting any numbers amount. So if you give a dollar, your name's going in there just like the next person, and you are going to be able to do that. Now, so that's baby. Hold on. Uh, okay, so that's out the way. And I'll be talking about it as we move through it. We definitely want your support. If you really believe in the work I've done over the past 30 years, the work I've done on social media for the last, what, 12, uh, you know, show your love. Let's take it to the next level. Uh, I really have a lot of hope for where we can go with this outside of simply writing a book. And I, I say simply, but this book is going to be roughly around 400 pages and it's going to be information packed, history packed, st strategy packed, and it's going to point to a light at the end of a tunnel. And it's a blueprint. And if we operate on the blueprint, we will gain progress. This is not some shot in the dark. 
this is years of research. This is years of understanding. This is years of sitting down with the brains and the minds that are at the top of the game in each one of these categories that we address in this book. And uh, I touch on it for so many different levels. So welcome in, come in, be a part of it, show some love. And on that note, let's move on. Let's talk. Okay. This is a second installment. Yesterday we talked about the black codes. The black codes were these laws that were literally enacted in the South that sort of doubled down and made uh, adjustments that softened the blow of the emancipation of slaves. Um, for instance, vagrancy laws. Vagrancy laws made it a felony to not be employed. Uh, in many states, slaves were required annually to show proof of employment or they could be in prison for up to 12 years. Now, that's not the end of it. During this imprisonment, they could be leased back out to the very plantations that they were freed from for pennies on the dollar so that the plantation owners continue to get their plantations worked with very little cost. Um, also, there were codes about what they could own. They couldn't own land. There were codes that dictated what fields of employment they can enter. There were certain uh, areas and industries they were not allowed to work in. Why? Because they were more skilled because they had always been the one working and they would have moved in and taken jobs from whites. So they made that. So and what happens when now you're blocked out of areas of getting jobs and where you have the skill set? You probably end up unemployed and then you probably end up in prison. And then now you're being leased out and you could be in prison for not having a job for 12 years. Uh, and then that was the apprenticeship law, the apprenticeship code. The apprenticeship code said that whites could literally uh, take ownership of young black kids that were classified as orphans. Now, the thing is, the kids didn't have to actually be orphans. All the white family needed was for a judge to declare that the parents were unfit to raise the kid. Then the kid would become the black child will become the ward of the white family. And now, again, there is free labor. Up until the child became of an adult age, they were there and they had to do as they were told. They were under the care of, so to speak. So now you got the precursor to mass incarceration, which was the vagrancy laws, which uh, uh, was the underwriter of convict leasing, where slaves were arrested, put in prison, then leased back out for basically for basic free labor. They weren't paid. Uh, the state received a slight you know, payment, but uh, plantation owners and businesses were getting a lot of labor for free. Now you have mass incarceration where uh, the arrest of blacks is incentivized and uh, situations are set up where blacks are more policed than they are protected. See, protect and serve does not apply to the inner city. Uh, does not uh, apply to the inner city. The inner city doesn't get protect and serve. The inner city gets policed. The inner city gets suspected. The inner city gets pulled over, searched, and arrested. While statistics show that while blacks are arrested for possession, whites are more likely to be in possession. And we can go on and on again. But again, Convict leasing from the black codes, which we talked about yesterday, says, OK, the pre the, the, it was a precursor to mass incarceration, which now they incentivize. I mean, it's an industry, literally companies that are invested in 
private prisons are being traded on pub on public platforms on the stock market. Uh, it's a it, it's a capitalism, a capitalistic endeavor, and we are by far the most impacted. We make up 13% of the population, but uh, male prisons, black men make up 40% of the population. Despite the uh, statistics and the studies that show that white people are probably more likely to be committing crimes. And that's a whole nother thing. But again, that's the thing we're dealing with. So we move from black codes uh, and we'll, we'll, we'll kind of talk about those and how they work with, with Jim Crow. But now we're going to move into Jim Crow. Depending on who you talk to, if you're going to count Jim Crow truly, you have to count Jim Crow as starting at the same time that the black codes started. It's forced segregation. You're not allowed here. We don't want you here. You can't use our stuff. You can't have access to our stuff. You, you are not a part of what we have. So you're going to be pushed out of education. You're going to be pushed out of finance. You're going to be pushed out of access to anything that might allow you to build wealth. Because remember, the reason we're having this discussion on these series is to understand how the development and the building of black wealth has been negatively impacted by institutionalized uh, policies, legislation, and codes and Jim Crow segregation was forced segregation and it was a time and period. Some say 75 years, some say 100. The ones that say 100 count it from 1865. The ones that say 75 start to count it roughly around 1890 after reconstruction and the black codes are kind of really taking its toll. Uh, right around the time of the, earth, the, the surge of sharecropping and, and so many other things were taking place again, where blacks were exploited and the ability to build wealth was pretty much negated. Now, we know for a fact that segregation actually had its positive effects because if it was segregation that forced us into communities where we had to learn how to act on our own, stand on our own, create our own, that created Tulsa. Uh, also known as Black Wall Street, created Rosewood, created Wilmington, North Carolina, created Slocum, Texas, created St. Louis, East St. Louis, created uh, communities right outside of Chicago and so many more that ultimately fell at the hands of white, right, white aggression uh, in which they found a reason to come in and destroy what we had built. Uh, it is obvious that it has been a consistent uh, notion that what black progress is always seen as aggressiveness towards white security and white peace. We could be off doing our own thing, not bothering anybody, but if it seems like we're thriving and we're becoming self-sufficient for whatever reason, it bothers them. Now, I know the reason because I've spent time, but that's not what I want to get into. But we understand something had to be happened. When something happens once, you can you can count, charge it up to some form of coincidence, even though there's always a cause. Nothing just happens. There's always a cause behind it. There's always a motive behind it. And it is. But when you see it happen, Rosewood, Tulsa, Slocum, Wilmington, on down the line. Now, that's statistically significant. That's a trend. That's something that's consistently happening. Every time blacks build up and they say, OK, you don't want us. We'll do it on our own. You tear it down. There's a reason for it. Uh, we're not getting into the reason, now, but I'm just pointing to the fact that there's a reason for it. So if there's a reason for it, there's a motive behind it, which means that you still have that potential for aggression when you stand alone and you move. They'll consistently say you need to be on your own. Stop asking for handouts. I'm not asking for handouts. We're asking for what you owe us. But they'll say it. And then when you go off and say, OK, since you ain't going to give it to us, we're going to do this. 
here they come. There's a reason for that. We're going to get into all that in the book, but I don't want to get ahead of myself. So I'm alluding to it so you can understand. But in Jim Crow segregation, that was a you're not allowed. You can't drink our water. You can't use our restrooms. You can't come in our restaurants. You can't attend our schools. Uh, and that's just on the surface. Also, any violation of any spatial uh, establishment in which you were not allowed could be enforced up to death. Jim Crow was a period of time where you could be literally lynched for looking at a white woman or looking a white man in the eyes. You didn't even have to go into a space you weren't invited in. You just had to have a look like you weren't afraid. Looking a white man, especially for a black man, looking a white, a black man looking a white man during that time in the eyes was a sign of aggression. It says, I don't fear you, and that bothered them. Now, they weren't going to deal with it one-on-one. -on -one. They were going to go get all their buddies, and they were going to come back, and they were going to make you pay for your insurrection. Uh, even Daniel Patrick Monaghan, in 1965, when he wrote uh, The Negro Family, A Case for National Action, which ultimately became known as the Monaghan Report, and he talked about all of the unique challenges that the Black uh, family faced, all the unique challenges that uh, African-Americans faced and that we had to take in consideration as a nation uh, the, the psychological experiences and the psychological implications of being uh, 246 years chattel slavery and what had transpired in Jim Crow segregation, black codes, redlining, urban, urban uh, renewal, benign neglect, and so much more up until the early 1860s, until 1865 when the report was done. Uh, there's a part in there that's, that's like when I read it, it just really caught my guard. He said, the natural move of a man is to beat his chest, is to hold his shoulders square, is to boast of his manhood. And then he talks about it, but he says that from the four-star general all the way down to a bantam rooster, the idea is to strut, is to boast of your manhood, except for when it comes to the black man. If the black man squares his shoulder and holds his hands up, he's considered a cocky nigger and he's dealt with accordingly. He should be lynched. The black man was not allowed to have confidence and to square his shoulders and to hold his head up. He was called to lean down. Actually, the head nod that you see between black men now actually came out of that because that was the black man's way of looking at another black man and say, I, saying, I see you. You aren't invisible. I see you. I notice you. You're not alone. What's up? Without doing it verbally where it could end up being considered an act of aggression. You got to understand just how bad this thing was. What you have to understand is the life of a black person actually became less valuable after slavery because they were no longer property. They were no longer held value. They were no longer considered assets. And so at that particular point, it was much more likely that someone would take the life of a black person because they had no direct value to them. When you, you are a slave, you earn me money. If I kill you, I can't get money out of you. I've actually cut my own wrist. So it was less likely. It still happened, but it was less likely to happen. It became very, very hostile towards those, those who remained here. Now, you got to remember that many states in the North also had segregation laws and codes in place that were in place before slavery ended 
in which you, uh, many states would not receive blacks. Oregon probably had the worst. Oregon had a 30-day rule. Blacks could not be in the state of Oregon over 30 days. Any black that was in the state of Oregon for more than 30 days will be caught and whooped with 30 lashes and then put out. They did not want blacks. They, they, you know, they weren't participating in slavery in most cases, but they did not want blacks in their state. And so you're kind of freed and forced to hang out in the place where things are most hostile. But then you got Jim Crow segregation. And like Jim Crow segregation, like I said, extends out into education, extends out into the lending practices. It stands out into how communities are managed. It stands out into how funds are allocated to uh, strengthen communities and strengthen businesses and so many other things that are a direct correlation into wealth building. And you have been locked out of it all solely based on your race. You have to understand Jim Crow segregation. We're going to get into the education tomorrow, and then we're going to get into uh, benign neglect. We're going to get into redlining, which is the financial part and access to funds to expand the neighborhood, to purchase houses and so many more. We're going to talk about all of that, but we got to first talk about what happened. Okay. The positive side of Jim Crow was that it forced us to become sufficient among ourselves. We grew our communities. We had our own movie theaters. We had our own taxi companies. We had our own uh, shoe stores. We had our own grocery stores. We literally were able to be self-sufficient. We bought among ourselves. We sold among ourselves. We worked among ourselves. Uh, uh, it'll be roughly at the same time on tomorrow, somewhere about, I would say, 10 a.m., uh, Keisha is asking, and I want to answer the question before I forget, around 10 a.m. Central Standard Time. Uh, so what happened is you've got all of these things we're, we're doing fine. So segregation in that way worked to our best interest. And that's why Martin Luther King told Harry Belafonte uh, towards the last part of his life, the last year or so, that while he felt we were finally going to get integration, he felt like he was integrating his people into a burning house. What happens is, here's what happens. When you integrate out of a segregated situation where basically you've been forced to practice black group economics. You're being forced to build your own economy. What happens is now it became about being accepted. There was no economic advantage to moving into a situation where they were because they were still keeping the doors of advancement and elevation closed. You were going to be able to eat at their restaurants, but you weren't going to be able to invest in it. You weren't going to have ownership in it. You were just going to spend your money in it. And so now what happens is when you move out of an enclave where you are self-sufficient and you are bouncing your dollars, they're saying that at its height, Tulsa was bouncing the black dollar in that 35 square block radius 30 something times before it ever left and went into the hands of a non-black. The black dentist bought from the black grocer, the black grocer bought from the black uh, dry cleaner. And, and, and whatever else, and I'm just talking here, but making an idea like it was, okay, everything we need, we got. So we're spending here, we're supporting here, we're living here, and we're building our own and sufficient. And you got to understand the very nature of wealth isn't how much money you have, it's how well you can sustain your particular lifestyle. For a person who is fine with living in a hundred and some thousand dollar home and taking one trip a year and whatever, they're... Uh, uh, gauge of wealth is going to be different than the person who wants to travel all the time, have a yacht, have a private plane, have all that, because to sustain that, you're going to have it. Wealth is simply the ability 
to be able to sustain your lifestyle without depending on someone else for income. So to everybody else, wealth is going to be different. But to things is you got to think their lives weren't as, as, as expansive and as demanding as ours. We got social media study telling us on a regular basis what we should own, what we should buy, where we need to go. You need to visit here. Every time you look up, somebody's on a trip somewhere. And now you've got to figure out how you're going to get the money to get there. And so you, you, you've, you've been trained to be a consumer. So you've become consumer minded. You got to understand that even the consumer minded person in Tulsa was spending their money with someone black. So, again, the community wasn't being raped by faulty thinking. But when you faulty thinking and now you're integrated, you're spending your money without ever thinking about investing. But you're investing in the very group that is oppressing you. So when you spend your money into a white economy, what are you doing? You are literally financing your own demise. You have to understand how this thing works. So now I'm integrated. So now what happens for every person that pulls out and stops going to the black movie theater, starts going to the white movie theater, stops going to the uh, black burger place, starts going to the white burger place. Guess what happens to the black burger place, the black movie theater, the black taxi company? It doesn't have the number of patrons to support it. And it goes under. Here's what actually happened. In many instances, the only the only businesses in the black community that survived integration were the businesses that that blacks sold to the Jews. If you go back into the 60s, if you go back into the 60s, late 50s and 60s until the early 70s and maybe mid to late 70s, you'll find that your grocery stores and uh, your shoe stores, your cleaners, all the stuff were owned by Jewish families. Orlando's a bunch of other different places, depending on where you live. It was Jewish. What happened is. Over time, the Jews begin to parlay their money into other investments. They begin to move into larger things like media, uh, the diamond and precious jewel industry, uh, into accounting and finance and banking. And they decided we no longer need to be in the black community. But what they did is they passed on the blueprint of how to build your own economy as a new uh, entity or a migrant. So then the Asians moved in. They built uh, cleaners. They built nail shops, beauty supply stores. The Arabs came in, set up liquor stores and gas stations. At one point in time, all this was black owned. But now you have non-blacks in the black community predominantly providing what you need. There may be a barbecue shop every, every, uh, over here and, and at this over there. But for the most part, the places that you have to go spend your money isn't owned by us. And that's because we took our money over into the integration part and spent with those who would never reinvest in our community. And here's the other side. When you're li living in a black enclave and there is a self-sufficient uptick of vertical economics, and I explained that yesterday, what happens is the community uh, feeds itself. Schools and businesses are built from this revenue that's consistently gener generated. Uh, homes are built, schools are built, businesses are birthed and supported from this internal thing. We're building our own, we're, we're, we're supporting ourselves. Well, what happens in integration, it did that. But here's the thing that you have to look at with Jim Crow. Jim Crow doesn't just represent that positive side, it represents the negative side. You had to do all of that We're still out with, without having access to the mechanisms that the wealth mechanisms that non-blacks have specific whites 
There's a reason why there's an expanding gap in median uh, household wealth. 140,000 for whites, under 20,000 and uh, for blacks, and in some cases, depending on what study, under 10,000. And it's getting wider. Why? Because we still don't understand how the game is played. We still don't know, you know, what true wealth building is. We still are buying into the idea of the American dream. And the American dream for most people is to be able to afford to buy something. While they have you buying their stuff, they're investing. And they have a principal idea of finance that says in order for me to buy something that's discretionary, meaning I don't need it, but I just want it. It has to be a certain percentage of what I have as discretionary income. In other words, I'm not spending my last for it. I'm spending something that basically I've worked to the point to where I've got it and I can go spend it and I'll never miss it. But that's, again, the mindset. So you have to talk about mindset also when you're talking about wealth building. Wealth building isn't just about the numbers. It's about the psychology and how we view money and how we view ourselves around money. You can have a great business creating great income. I know a bunch of two people who are uh, earning mid six figures that cannot miss a day. Or they're going to lose something. Because of how they operate. I know people who are making $60,000 a year that'll be good for years if they stop getting income because of how they think. I know of a person who worked for a parking lot his entire career, never made more than $12 a year. But the parking lot happened to be in the financial district where money managers and, and stockbrokers would park their vehicles. And he began to ask questions about different parts of finance. He learned over the course of his life finance and invest his money retired as a millionaire. I know a this was a black man. Now I know a white man who never made more than $14,000 a year, but found someone who talked to him about investing in compound growth. One of the biggest things that every person should know. Now we're talking strategy very quickly and we'll get back to Jim Crow, but everybody should understand compound growth. Most of us don't build wealth because we are the victims of compound what? Interest. Compound interest in the way of debt. We live in a debt-based economy, so everything is driven about getting you to buy something you can't afford, so you have to get it on credit. Everything is underwritten by debt that is purchased by outside financial entities. People literally buy your debt and use it to underwrite value. You have to understand that. So this is a consumer-driven economy. It's not underwritten by gold, the gold standard. It hasn't been since I think 1972 when Nixon took us off the gold standard. So now you have to understand that everything is debt driven now. That's why up until about five years ago, China owned over two uh, thirds of our, our, our debt. It has offloaded a bunch of it. I think it's down to a third now, but your, your biggest competitor owns a great deal of your debt. Talking about your, your economy being shaky. But here, here's the thing. You're talking about uh, compound growth. Compound growth works the same way as compound debt. Compound debt is you, you buy a house for $150,000 and it's at even a, a good interest, 4%, but it's compounded. It's compounded annually. So if it takes 30 years to pay it off, you don't pay $150,000. You probably pay somewhere close to $300,000 for that $150,000 house. Well, compound growth is when you invest in something that 
is compounding on interest annually. Uh, one of the best ways to do that is get into uh, a passively active uh, mutual fund, not an active mutual fund. That's a different thing. Horrible results most of the time. But a passively active mutual fund would be something like the Vanguard S&P uh, 500. Uh, and it normally and has consistently over the years produced anywhere from 8.2 to 10 percent compounded annually. So you literally every time you put something in, that's growing. The interest is growing. And then the interest grows on the interest and the addition. So you're adding every year or every month or every week or whatever. But that's also being compounded. And so you can literally grow uh, exponentially. There are a bunch of compound calculators on the internet and you can go on and say okay if i put in 500 dollars a month over the next 20, 20 years and it's compounded at 8.2 percent interest what would be my gains and you will blow your freaking mind and the earlier you start in your life the better it's going to work for you this is a long-term strategy this isn't hey i'm going to invest and then five years from now i'm going to be set this isn't what this is. This is about building generational wealth. And this is about long term projections. You've got to get outside of if you've got to go do work to earn it. You're never going to build wealth that way. And you've been told the total opposite. The harder you work, the better you're going to be. Now, the harder you you can work hard to build your business. But at some time, your business has to put you into a situation to where you can leverage your revenue to create situations where your money earns money without you being in, in participation. If you haven't created a situation and mechanism where your money is earning money, you are nowhere closer to building wealth, no matter how much you earn a year than you can. Because if you've required to show up and do it in order to have it, you're at the mercy of your health. You're at the mercy of that opportunity uh, consistently existing. That means you can't get fired. You can't get sick. Or that goes the opportunity. And so back to back to uh, the integration thing, integration simply pushed us into a situation where it made it easier for them to access our dollars. And when Dr. King realized that it, he made an about face and he started to talk about reparations, he started talking about going back to Washington and getting our check. Uh, he was subs subsequently killed. Uh, here's a little side note. In 1999, in civil court, the U.S. government was found guilty of being responsible for his death. I'm not going to get off into the details, but it gets grimy. Shows you just how grimy this country is. This isn't any conspiracy theory. This is I actually watched the court and you can look it up. The King family sued the U.S. government and won because facts start coming out about how he actually came and met his demise. Okay, so back to it. Like I said, the whole Jim Crow thing is going to play out over old things because my thing is I agree with uh, Michelle Alexander who wrote the new Jim Crow. Jim Crow is still in play. We just have a new set of uh, vernacular terms to express what existed in the past. Redlining is still in play. Urban, new, urban uh, renewal, benign neglect is still in play. Gentrification is on steroids. And all of those urban renewal, benign neglect, redlining and gentrification are forms of what's known as serial force displacement. I've written a number of papers on serial force displacement. And not only does it have a negative impact on us economically, it has a negative impact on our health physically. 
the level of education we are uh, allowed to achieve and acquire and so much more. Matter of fact, there is studies and evidence that proves that serial forced displacement exacerbated the HIV epidemic at the beginning of its uh, onset. There's so much that goes into understanding how we're being handled or if you want to uh, use another term, how we're being hurted. You have to understand and be willing to read and have an understanding. My thing is you have to ask yourself, it's been 156 years since the emancipation. Blacks have made no economic progress. Blacks have made no economic progress. We own roughly within a few percentage points what we owned then. It seems like more now, but they have more. You're talking about percentages. I explained this yesterday. It's not how much you have. It's how much you have in relationship to what everybody else has. Having a million dollars means absolutely nothing in the form of power if the other people that you are sitting up and you're in competition with has a hundred million. So just because you have this, and they love to throw that number 1.3, 1.4 trillion dollars out there and, and say that's, okay, there's a lot of things up for debate and it takes a lot to understand what that really and truly means. But at the end of the day, 1.6 trillion really ain't that big of a deal in a $105 trillion a year income, I mean, economy. But it'll have you thinking, man, we got, yeah, we got it, but then, it, but we can leverage it. We can leverage it. We can take what we have because that's what we're going to have to do. Do we still apply the pressure for them to pay us what they owe us? Absolutely. But you can't count on that. They've proven that they're not surrendering that because that comes with some hell of a consequences. If our economic empowerment is underwritten by them and we actually get what we're owed and we actually develop the mindset to do something with it, we already proved what, what we could do when you when you free us. Don't give us access to jobs. We got to create our own jobs, create our own way. And you sit up and, and, and set up codes to make sure we're not, we're not able to generate revenue for ourselves. And we still thrive in places like Tulsa, Rosewood. We show you what we can do. Imagine what we do if we actually got what we were worth. Imagine we got what you actually owe us. Imagine if we just go back and say, okay, what would 40 acres and a mule be worth today? And you have to pay it to our families for each person that was, was free. Imagine. See, you have to start sitting up thinking and ask yourself, why? Why is it that every other group that's been wronged by this country has received some form of uh, remuneration or uh, reparations except us? We still represent a threat because of who we are. And we have to understand that. I think Dr. Francis Chris Welsing uh, did a great deal to highlight that. There's a natural internal and inherent conflict going on. This isn't just simple X and O's. You gotta understand why they feel the way they feel. And it's, just, it's not as simple as it may seem. You need to gain an understanding of that. But at the core of building, what do you want for your for the future of your children? What do you want for your progeny? What do you want for your offspring? What do you want for those who are four generations down, your great, 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 great grandkids? How can you ensure that what you're doing now will make things better for them? Economic empowerment. 
their ability to write their own path without begging somebody for something, their ability to educate themselves without going into student loan debt, their ability to go out and acquire a home that they don't get pushed into heavy, heavy interest rates because of their credit uh, or because of where they are living. Uh, and all of that comes into play where you're living, how many people are, uh, how many, what, what's the dem, what's the, uh, the ratio of blacks to white in the community, because that's going to determine a lot of how the blanks going to handle you. Redlining still exists. You have to understand how the game is being played. And that's what we're trying to do uh, in this book. Well, no, that's what I'm doing in this book is I'm bringing everything out, putting it on the table, saying that's why we didn't get this for then. That's why we got here. This is why, this is why, this is why. And then, okay, this is what we have to do. From this point on, this is how we have to move. This is how we have to act. This is what we must do. This is how we, and it's gonna require discipline. It's gonna require self-discipline. It's gonna require fo focus. It's gonna require commitment. It's gonna require loyalty uh, to the collective. We have been in individualized at a level that makes it very hard for us to do anything. Everything is about us, what I want. If I'm good, I could care less about everybody else. Problem is when something starts to go wrong for me because I'm so individualized, I have nobody to turn to. So it's easy to, to misdirect one person at a time in different places than if we all stood together and say, okay, we're gonna operate on a pro-social basis. We're gonna have our own codes of conduct. We're gonna have our own set of accountability. We're gonna function as a unit and a force rather than individuals who are easily mishandled. That's why we're constantly being mishandled. Most of us will look at something being done to wrong, wrong to one of us and go, shake my head. Oh my God, that's sad. Man, I hate that. Or we get real bold and show up with a sign. No justice, no peace. What does that do to any of them in the place of power that could change that reality. Nothing, it's a temper tantrum. It's just like with my kids when they were growing up, get around that age three and all of a sudden anything they don't get, they wanna fall out. Guess what, they got left on the floor, why? Ain't nothing they can do to me. There's nothing that that kid can do to me that's gonna make me feel like I gotta give them something I've already said they can't have. Them crying don't bother me. I just got to put up with the noise for a while. Eventually, they're going to cry themselves to sleep. Works every darn gone time. So when you sit up and you have no economic power, all you have is a voice with no power, no economic power to underwrite it. You show up and you're angry. You show up with your signs. You say you're going to bark, all that stuff. All you are now is participating in a collective temper tantrum. Until you can hurt their pocketbooks by actions you take because you have economic power yourself. You will have no political influence. You can vote until you're blue in the face. That's why we've been voting for 50 plus years since the Voter Rights Acts in the mid 60s, the Civil Rights Acts that all that stuff that came in the 60s, the Voter Rights Acts that came in, in the mid 60s that allowed us to vote. We've been voting in an increasing turnout, except for the year that Trump got. Uh, voted in, but every year we have literally stood up and turned out in an increasing number each presidential cycle and voted 90% for the group we believe that would represent us, 90% Democrat. And yet, if you look at our socioeconomic measurements, we are worse off than when we started. It shows that without economic power, they have no fear of us. They will promise us stuff. They'll show up and they'll do great uh, photo ops 
They'll do stuff that looks good in the community. They could up a community center. They'll do a bunch of other stuff. How are you empowering businesses in the community? How are you creating programs that empower blacks to be self-sufficient? If it's not about self-sufficiency, if it's not about we're setting you up to take care of yourself where you're not dependent upon our social programs, where you're not dependent on us doing things, if it's not that, it's nothing. If it's not setting us up to stand on our own, it's, it's a setup. And we it's time for us to wake up and realize it. Until we get economic power, we will continue to be played. We'll continue to be at their mercy. Can we really or truly do what we want to do and stand how we want to stand and say what we want to say and be who we want to be when we know we're going to need them to feed us, when we know we're going to need them to give us jobs, when we know we're going to need them to finance our homes? We're tiptoeing. We'll say a little something. And then when they say what, we say nothing. Why? Because you need them. We are going to have to build a platform. Black men. We got to build a platform to underwrite our black men so that our black men can't stand. I said this uh, 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 feels like a million times already. I know it hasn't been, but it feels like it. That. We have to understand the importance of our duality. Black male masculinity, black female femininity, merging to create synergy. The inner two, the sinking of two types of energy to create a force so powerful that they, that things can be accomplished in this synergistic place that cannot be accomplished with individual force. We got to understand that. We got to understand that we need to be doing this. And I've said this so many times on Blue in the Face that we will only get as high as our women spiritually lift us because spiritually they can't be touched. They literally birth dreams, visions, ideas. You want something to grow, give it to your woman. She is an incubator of power. She will take what you give it and she will magnify it. But you got to give her something. You got to give her got to give her security. You got to give her safety. You got to give her a sense of warmth and love. And she's got to feel protected. But we will only get as high as our women will lift us. And we will only get as far as our men can physically lead us. Meaning that our men got to be willing to stand up and go out there, put their life on the line if necessary and say, you will not touch the kids in this community. You will not touch the women or the elder in this community. I will protect it with my life. But see, you got to have power to do that. Kind of hard to do that when the people you're trying to protect your community from are the people that's paying your salary. They're the people that you need for the loan for 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 your home. Going to provide your medical care. Look, we've got a lot of work to do. Uh, I'm excited about this project. This book number twenty five. Is by far, I think, going to be the most explosive, but also the most helpful. This isn't about complaining and whining and just being radical and 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 and, and, and whatever for the sake of ra being radical. This is about saying we got to do something radical, or we're going to literally be overrun and overwhelmed. This is about saying here's the blueprint to actually elevate us in power. 
That's what I'm saying. And like I said at the beginning, I'm inviting everybody to sponsor this project. If you sponsor it, your name will be published in the book along with whoever you want to memorialize. Memorialize your mom, your dad, uh, your pastor, uh, your coach, uh, your mentor, or you can acknowledge someone who's living, your wife, your children, uh, whatever. But uh, the, the information is in the, in the uh, description box. Click the link, go to the page, find out how that works. Do your sponsorship. You'll be contacted by me and we'll get your statement of memorialization or your statement of acknowledgement, publish it in the book. Those who uh, public, uh, sponsor more than $25 will actually get a copy of the book. Those who sponsor 100 will get a dedicated page. Those who sponsor 500 will actually get the dedicated page along with the ability to submit a photo of their choice. On that note, I'm out of here. There's so much more to do. Look forward to talking to you guys tomorrow on this series, the Black Wealth Series. We're going to talk about education tomorrow. On that note, I'm out. Peace.